Welcome to the Every Breath Counts podcast. My name is Ryan Sheckel, and each week I interview experts and leaders about their stories and strategies on how to optimize your mind, your body, your career, and your life so that you can make every breath count. Thank you for investing your time in the show and yourself. Now let's get started. Benjamin Franklin said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. And Seneca said, it is not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more that is poor. As you continue to grow personally and professionally, it's imperative that you learn how to manage your money. My guest today is Kenny Polcari. Kenny is a CNBC commentator, market strategist, and founder of the wealth management firm Case Capital Advisors. In part one of this interview, Kenny and I discuss the pillars of personal finance. He shares how he advises the modern investor to create designer investment plans, balancing risk and maximizing growth. We also discuss how your relationship with money can affect your relationship with your life partner and why and how you should have conversations about your financial goals. If you know anyone that's struggling financially or needs a jumpstart or even a refresher course in personal finance, send this episode to them now. And if this is your first time here, welcome and thank you for tuning in. Be sure to click the subscribe button to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And be sure to rate us and leave a review with the most impactful part of this episode when you're done listening. Get ready to optimize your financial life with Kenny Paul Kari. Kenny Polkari, thank you so much for joining the show. I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Kenny, you've had a long, illustrious career, career as a stockbroker, wealth manager, market strategist, as well as a contributing expert for many of the financial news institutions such as CNBC, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal. But most recently, you're the founder and CEO of Case Capital Advisors, an, indefen- an independent firm bringing vibrant financial stewardship to the modern investors reshaping wealth and legacy. What does it mean to bring financial stewardship to the modern investor? Well, so here's what I think, right? The modern investor today is is a range of people, right? It's not just uh, mom and dad anymore. It's mixed families. Yeah. It's 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 gender neutral. It's um, 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 adoptive families that I think are more in the mainstream now than maybe they were before, right? So uh, the modern investor are people that are also becoming much more educated about the markets, much more educated about investing. You know, they're 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 dipping their toes in things like crypto and alternative assets, and so they need some guidance, they need some um, uh, some assistance, right? Which is which is perfectly okay because just like me, when I need a tooth pulled, I don't don't go to Google and figure out how to pull my tooth. I go to the dentist, right? Because they need somebody yeah. to help me. So in this case, the modern investor today is really just the people today that are taking a much more active role in their investment life, their financial life, right? They're not just leaving it to a, to a, a, a pre-programmed, um, market plan that just put money away and they don't pay any attention to it, right? They're much more involved. It's much more dynamic. Certainly the way the world has evolved in terms of technology and products out there, it's also much more complicated, right? And so therefore, for people that are not, for people who don't do this for a living, um, 
and need that help. That's who, in my mind, the, the new modern investor is. And it, and it, and it spans the ranges, right? The, the, it spans across the ranges. So it could be the traditional male and female couple. It could be the male couple. It could be the female couple. It could be you know a range of people that are now uh, defined as the modern investor. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's the technology has made it to a point where every investor, not just institutional investors, have control over their investments to a certain degree. So as this modern investor starts taking accountability and says, I am now becoming an investor, where should they start to think about those investments? What are the principles they should think about? Well, so it depends. <laughs> That's a great question, but it, a lot of it depends on who that person is, where they are in the life mm. cycle, what their obli- what their current obligations are, what they think their obligations are going to be in the future. I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, right? So if you're 25 years old and you're just starting, then the answer is take something, identify the number, $100, $200, $500, whatever it is a month or or every two months, whatever the, the time frame is or whatever you can afford. Um but you have to start there by committing to a certain amount of money, whatever it is, and then just putting it away, right? So you have to start by opening up an account where you're going to get broad exposure, right? To sit there and open up a Robinhood account and to put $200 yeah. a month away and then buy meme stocks, okay, might be exciting. Maybe it makes you feel good, but it's not going to get you there in the long run, right? Um, and so there's a plan and there's a focus. And so what happens with a lot of people, um, and I, you know, certainly look, it happens to everybody because when you're 25 years old and you don't know yet, you don't understand, you look for mentors or people that have been there to guide you. Right. And that's true across anything you do, right. Any business you're in, you're always looking for a mentor. You're always looking for somebody to help you. Um, so that you so that you don't make a lot of the same mistakes because look I made a ton of mistakes when I was a kid so I've got a lot of experience to help you not make those mistakes right um, yeah and so and so that's what I think so it depends again on where you are in the life cycle where you are in terms of your career your other obligations do you need to buy a house you already own a house do you need to put away for education you've already done that or you're doing that do you need uh, you know you have a 401k or a retirement plan how is that invested you want to make sure that you're not necessarily invested in the same things if you have a, a company 401k and then you have a separate IRA because you end up being overweight when you didn't even realize you were overweight and so there's a lot to discuss when you ask that question because it's so big and open-ended, but that's part of what I do, right? I have these conversations with people to help them identify um, a plan, to help them identify how to put it away, to help them identify, you know, goals and benchmarks along the way. Yeah. So I started having a passion for investing kind of early on in my career when I realized that no matter how much money I saved, whether I was putting it in a savings account, like once I took it out of my paycheck and started saving it, I wasn't going to be ready for retirement based on just money I saved, right? Like that money had to work for me. Where do you, or where do you advise your clients or where should anyone start thinking about like what their money is doing? So, well, listen, you always have to think about what your money's doing from the very get go, right? So the first thing is you should always be thinking about what your money's doing, how hard it's working for mm. you now. To, once again, to answer that question, you know, if you're 30 years old, I'm 60, you're 30. My time horizon is very different from your time horizon. 
right? I'm on the back nine. You're on the front nine, right? I could be, uh, I, I could, I might have 10 years left. I might have 15 years left. You on the other hand might have 35 years left. And so therefore your design and your plan is going to be different than mine, right? You're going to take much more risk. Why? Because you can afford to. You're going to be much more weighted to the growth names, the high growth names, the sexy kind of, you know, exciting names, right? Me on the other hand, I might have some exposure to those high growth and sexy names, but it's going to be in percentage terms, it's going to be a lot less than what you have because I need to, you know, I'm I'm now getting to the point, and I'm not there yet because, you know, I because I'm not ready to retire yet because I don't want to. Um so, so uh, to answer that question depends on where you are in the life cycle. But I would, I would gather to say someone your age is going to be much more aggressive than someone my age. And someone my age needs to know that there's balance, that they can weather the storm, that they're not going to, you know, wake up one day and the market has a, the market throws a tepid tantrum and suddenly, you know, they've wiped away 10 years worth of savings. They can't do that. You have the ability to do that because you're only 32 and you got another 40 years to go before you have to worry about taking that money out. Yeah. So, and when people think about aggressiveness in the market, and this is, you know, when I first started investing, sure, it was, I was a teacher when I first started my career and we had a financial advisor come in and he said, Hey, this is your 401k. And I think it was a 403b at the time, right? Like you need to put money into your retirement fund. I didn't know anything about that at the time. They just said, are you risky? Or are you conservative in your investment? And it didn't mean anything because I didn't understand what that meant for that in particular investment. So what, what should people be thinking about for that? And those are the two questions. Are you risky or are you conservative? That was the way financial planning used to be done. Are you willing to take risk or are you not? And if you're not, you're going to you're gonna invest this way. And if you are, you're going to invest this way. And that was fine. But today, the landscape mm. has changed so dramatically because there are so many, there are so many new products out there. There's so many different ways to achieve that goal, right? And you can do it by reducing, you can still put your money to work, but you can reduce the risk because you have so much more, uh, so many more choices, right. To, to, uh, to invest the money in it. So therefore you don't want to be overweight. You don't want to be 30 or 40% in high growth names necessarily, or 30, 40% in bonds when you're 35 years old. You don't want to be in bonds when you're 35 years old. Bonds are for someone when you get to my age and you start to think about, you start to think about retirement. That's where bonds come into play. But at your age, you shouldn't be in bonds at all. You should be mostly in equities, but depending on this, listen, and it's a spectrum, right? It's not just risky or conservative. There's a whole spectrum of, of options there. And once again, it's not only you look, you have to talk. If you're a single person, then fine. It's only you. But if you're married, whether it's your, whether it's your husband, it's your wife, um, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever it is, if you're going to start to put your money together and build a life together, then it's really a conversation about both of you because you may be much more aggressive than your partner is. Maybe your partner is much more conservative. And so therefore you have to also take that into account because he or she is part of that plan, right? So you can make, you can, and you need to, as a, as a wealth manager, as an advisor, you have to take all that into account and you have to make everybody feel comfortable, right? A little bit of it is compromise, right? As a, as a couple, um, Listen, there's compromise in everything we do as a couple, right? If you're if you're solo and you're your own person, there's no compromise. You do whatever you want, right? Right. But if but if you're in a relationship um, and you're and you're both trying to build this future together, then you have to take into account each other's each other's 
risk tolerance, what they think, what they feel, how they feel, what their goal is, how old are they, how much money are they contributing versus how much money you're contributing, are they separate accounts, are they joint accounts? Because listen, if they're separate accounts, you can take your account and go all high growth and you could take her, her account or his account and be more conservative with it, but yet taken together because you're a couple taken together, that money will still continue to grow. So, you know, it's a very interesting question, but it's not a question that you, that ha- just has a, uh, a cookie cutter answer is the point. Yeah. So, so let's unpack that for a second, because, you know, I think about a lot of my friends and, and people that I've known throughout the years. And one of the things that I think is scary to people is actually having this conversation. And I think it's a very difficult conversation to have with your partner. Let's just say whomever it is, it is, is your, is your partner. How, what questions should you be asking? What is this conversation and how should it go with your partner to even determine that risk tolerance? Because like when I started, risk was how many bonds versus how many stocks, right? right? Like how do you determine that risk tolerance in this modern day and age? Well, listen, here's the first thing that I would tell anybody is this conversation about risk and about planning and about the future has to happen well before you commit to each other. You have to know who that uh, person is. That person needs to know who you are. So it's, you know, it, it's almost like foreplay and dating. You have to have a sense of what that person, because listen, all this, you don't do that. You don't have that conversation. Suddenly you get married and, and then you have this conversation and this person is way, way, way out here. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. That makes no sense at all. That's going to create stress in a marriage, going to create stress in a relationship. And so this conversation that you say is ha- that that should be happening, and everybody should have it should happen while you're still in that dating game, right? You need to really understand what somebody wants. And listen, when you're when you're dating, you have other conversations. How many mm-hmm. kids would you like to have? Where would you like to live? What's your goal for when you want to retire? You have those conversations. But what's very difficult for a lot of people is to actually have a money conversation. How much money do you make? How much money are you going to put away? How are you going to invest it to reach this goal? And those are conversations that are difficult to have, but have to be had, right? And to, and and that question has to happen before you put a ring on your finger or march down the aisle or do whatever you do, because uh, you need to know, it's like anything, you need to know who you're getting in bed with, Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, so it's a it's a very real conversation, and there's nothing wrong with it. A lot of people are uncomfortable talking about money, and part of that is just because mm-hmm. of the way, because of the way we're actually taught about money, right? No one ever talks about it. God forbid you have, you know, a lot of parents don't talk, never talked about things. My parents never talked to me about it when I was a kid. Never, not not any of us, right? Um, I tried to do much better with my kids, and I think I did. I could have probably done better even still. But today, you can even do better because. Uh, the way the world has changed, the way the technology kind of has changed the world, the way that you can go on Google, you can Google questions, you can find answers, you can go on Robinhood. They've gamified the investing process, which is, you know, on the one hand, it's okay because it's drawing in this new generation of investors. Yet on the other hand, I think it's actually uh, on balance. I actually think it's a negative to gamify the investing the investing process because what you don't want to, the message I think you don't want to send is that, you know, you feel like you're going to Vegas and it's a casino and it's mm-hmm. everybody, you know, ah, ah, you know, I did better than you, or I made more money today than you made more money. Guess what? Remember Aesop's fable, the, the tortoise in the air, slow and steady, always, always, always wins the race. 
Yeah, so that's a great point. And this gamification is a really interesting concept. And I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the gamification of money just adds risk more than anything. Because what it's doing is it's allowing a novice investor through your Robin Hoods, through whatever it is, understanding that they want to make more money, but not having the right information. And then providing a platform that has implications that could wipe out whatever gets put in. So, yeah, so so that's risk. I'm not suggesting to anybody that you don't have, here's what I would suggest. And here's what I do suggest is that people should have investment accounts. So whether they're tax Mm. advantage retirement accounts or whether they're just straight investment accounts, they should have that. They should have their retirement account. And they should have this little kitty over here Mm. that they can play with because it gives them this high. It gives them this thrill, but it's a kitty over here. That's got X amount of dollars in it. You're not risking your future. You're not risking retirement, but you're playing with this little amount of money. And that's great because everybody needs that thrill and that's fine. But I wouldn't make that thrill a hundred percent of money that you're trying to put to work, to save, to use, to provide for an education, to provide for weddings, to provide for retirement, to provide for a second home. That's not what I would use that money for. I would use the money over in this little kitty. Go on Robin Hood, knock your socks off, do what you want. Buy the meme stocks, sell the meme stocks, go long, go short, do whatever you want. Fine. But don't do that with your long-term retirement investment assets. Absolutely not. Yeah. So you brought up something there that I think is one of the most misunderstood and hardest to understand for myself uh, ideas in investing, and that's tax implications. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the way that taxes affect your portfolio, whether it be your retirement, whether it be your short-term investments in the stock market, real estate, whatever it is, how should people consider tax implications in their well, personal investing? Well, listen, a lot of them are going to be very surprised. You know, uh, this in the year that they're in, they've been playing around with Robinhood and maybe even started mm-hmm. in 2020 when they had to file their taxes. But a lot of people, if you're in and out of an investment account, you're going to get hit with taxes on every uh, on every single trade you have, whether it's a gain, a loss, you know, you're going to net it all mm-hmm. out, blah, blah, blah. That's what's going to happen. And you're going to have to add, you're going to net net, you're going to allocate you're going to have to allocate money at the end of the year to pay those taxes. If you're if you're investing in a long-term retirement account that's tax advantaged, there's no tax implication during the time. The tax implication mm. becomes when you start to withdraw the money. But that's the whole idea. When you start to withdraw the money, you're older, you're in a lower tax bracket, so any taxes that you any any money that you take out that's that that needs to be taxed is going to get taxed at a lower rate. But for on your day trading stuff where you're in, you're out or your short-term trading, you buy it, you hold it for a month and you sell it, whatever, all those money. And may, maybe you make gains every way along the way. Well, guess what? Those gains add up. And at the end of the year, Uncle Sam comes knocking on your door and says, hello, you made mm-hmm. you know $50,000 in profits in, in, in short-term capital gains, and you're going to owe us 30% of that money. So you better have a check for $15,000 ready to go because that's what yeah. it's going to cost you, right? And so um, people need to really, really understand that. And I think that's part of, certainly part of the education process. And I think it's a lot of the things that uh, places like Robin Hood and these gamified platforms don't really do a good job of educating and explaining and telling all these people that, you know, be careful because they they suck you in. Oh, and here we're going to give you an extra hundred bucks to open your account and to trade. 
they suck you in, but they don't honestly um, prepare you to understand some of those implications. And so, listen, as a as a as a, if you're a day trader, you better damn well understand what the implications are. If you're a long term, yeah. if you're a long term investor, it's less so because you're not really whipping it around. And if you're using a tax advantage account, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. Because there are no tax implications on a tax advantage account, so that's a four hundred one k. That's an it's an IRA. It could be a, a, an education fund, right? A five twenty nine plan. There are no tax implications while you're building. Yeah. So you know, you've talked a lot about just in general, like that diversified portfolio, right? Like you're saying, you could be in this tax advantage fund, this long term retirement fund. You could be in Robinhood. You can be in a lot of different asset classes. I mean, how do you? How do you go about diversifying a portfolio? Like you don't want everything in a 401k. You don't want everything into just this this money account where you're day trading. I mean, to you, what is a really well-balanced portfolio? Well, you're asking kind of two questions there because when you say a well-balanced portfolio, what I hear when mm-hmm. somebody says that to me is, how do I build a long-term portfolio that has both value and growth and the proper amount of risk. And it's not way out on the risk scale, but it's not way on the, at the conservative end of the scale. You know, maybe it's kind of just center to the right of moderate. So it's a little bit, that's what I think about when I think about a well-balanced portfolio, constructing that, the names that you want in there. Are you going to buy individual names? Are you going to, are you going to, are you going to, uh, are you going to invest this money in ETS, which give you more of a passive, but broader exposure? Again, a lot of that is going to depend on who you have, the amount of money you have to invest. Um, I always, I would always say you're going to start with as a as an advisor. If I get somebody brand new that's just starting, they're going to start and they're going to open up and they're going to start either with um, they're going to start either with a broad mutual fund that might be like a capital appreciation fund. That's mm-hmm. just until they get it started. Once they, you know, once they get five or ten thousand dollars in there, then you can start to diversify that away, right? And sure. you can start to build it with either. Uh, you can you can you can become a little bit more um, um, <laughs> designer by picking different ETFs, right? That focus on different segments of the market, different countries around the world, different industries around the world, or just different industries. In the United States is it small cap? Is it large cap? Is it value names? Is it the blue growth names? Are they growth names? Are they international names? There's so many ways that you can design that portfolio. But again, you don't want to do that. You don't want to take a thousand dollars and try to cover every sector in, uh, around the world. You can't do that, right? So you have to start somewhere. So you start with a broad, the way I would the way I would always advise people, you start with a broader fund until you build up, you know, a decent amount. Maybe it's five, maybe it's 7,500, maybe it's 10 grand. And then from there, you start to diversify that. And then every new uh, addition to the, to the account then get split up as you go along. And don't forget, every quarter you're going to get, if you own individual stocks and their dividend page, you're going to get dividends. You should absolutely click the button that says you don't want the dividend in cash. You want it to be automatically reinvested in the stock mm-hmm. that you own. And the stock that you own are stocks that you like that fit your portfolio so you don't mind owning more. And then what happens if, if then you have to rebalance as a as a as an investor? You have to have this conversation with your with your portfolio manager, with your advisor on rebalancing your portfolio because some stocks really outperform and then they end up becoming too big of a percentage of your portfolio. And so you have to rebalance. So you chip away a little bit. You don't sell it all. You don't blow. You don't throw everything out the door. Which is what I always love when people talk about, you know. Uh, they're afraid that the market's going to come into a, a, a volatile session. Yeah. So they sell everything. 
What are you selling everything for? Absolutely not. The biggest mistake you can do is sell everything. The biggest mistake. But if you have a well-designed portfolio, is it going to take a hit? Potentially it's going to take a hit, but it's also going to provide an opportunity for you to keep taking that money that you're that you're investing every month and keep putting it away. And so if the market gets cheaper, that same amount of money is going to buy more stock at lower prices. And so over time, mm-hmm. over time, it works to your benefit. And that's, I think, gets lost in the conversation. And if you watch a lot of the media, you know, they, they end up getting hysterical in the media. They create all this hysteria. Oh, my God. From it's absolutely unfounded that they do that. Now, look, things like last March when the pandemic hit and the market sold off 30% in, you know, two weeks. I get it. Is it painful? It's painful. Yes. Mm. Did people, were some people panicking? Absolutely. But the, but, but you know what happens typically by the time you panic, you always end up selling out at the bottom because you hold on, you hold on, you hold on, and then you go, Oh, I can't stand it anymore. And boom. You sell it out and bang, you sold it out exactly at the wrong time. Right. Yeah. When you feel like you want to sell it is when you actually should be buying it. And that's mm. difficult for a lot of people to understand. But again, it also depends on where they are in their life cycle, where they are in, in their career, where they are with money they can put away. It is difficult, but that's why sometimes you need you need the ear of a mentor, somebody who's been there, somebody who's lived through it, right? I lived through the crash of 1987. I was on the floor of the exchange the day the market sold off 22.5% of its value in six and a half hours. I was there during the tech boom of the 90s. I was there during the dot-com bubble of the you know, 99, 2000 and the collapse of the NASDAQ stock market. I was there through 9-11 and, and, and the resulting trade after that. I was there all through the great financial crisis. Of you know 2007 to 2021, so yeah. you know when you talk to somebody who's 30 years old that doesn't have that that experience in their in their in their life, um, it works to their benefit to talk to somebody who has had it, right? Who's understood it, who understands it, who's seen it through, who's kind of ridden the wave. Yeah. You know, that that's a question that I really wanted to get into with you because we are in, in a lot of ways, it seems like an unprecedented time, right? But at the same time, like trends or history seems to repeat itself in a lot of ways. Are we in a time right now that reminds you of any other time in history? Well, listen, the last time we were in this position, I was just graduating. I was in college, right? I was in college in late 70s, early 80s. I graduated in 1983. And when I graduated in 1983, we had just come through the Jimmy Carter years. The country was a complete disaster. We'd mm. gone through the oil embargo and oil had oil had you know shot up and crushed the economy. Inflation was out of control. Interest rates were 20%. Um, unemployment was running at 13%. I mean, it was a disaster. Now, Today, that's not where we are because inflation's running. Well, right now, inflation's running at about three and a half percent, but up from you know one and a half percent. Interest rates are zero compared to twenty percent, but um, uh, and and unemployment you know has certainly come down. But my fear is that I think we 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 the mm-hmm. country as well as every other the US, major yeah. central bank around the world has pumped so much money into the system. And you can see it. You see it in the in the uh, in the in the rise in asset prices across every aspect, whether it's real estate, yeah. whether it's commodities, whatever it is. Uh, my fear is that the Fed uh, is way in over their head because we've never. Th- 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 Un- when you talk about unprecedented, it is unprecedented right now. We as a country and as a, as a world has never been in this position before. So no one really understands how it's going to end up. We can only hope that the central bankers, you know, 
understand what they're doing and that are out in front of it. My fear is that they're not in front of it. They're actually behind it. And so uh, as inflation starts to spin out of control, which I think it's going to, then the Fed's going to have to act much more aggressively uh, the way they did in the way they did in in the early '80s when mm. inflation was running out of control and the Fed suddenly jacked rates up to you know twenty percent. It took a couple of years to get there, but rates you know my first mortgage in 1985 was fifteen and a half percent. So for mm. everyone out there that yeah. goes, oh no no, it never happened. You're a dinosaur. You don't get it. Really, dude, wake up. It can absolutely happen. All they've known for the last. 15 years are zero interest rates. So they think, oh, this is the way it is. This is not the way it is at all. And look, they're already having a nervous breakdown. If rates go up by a quarter of a percentage point, the market has a complete nervous breakdown. Why? Because the majority of people that are trading today only know a low level, a low interest rate environment. They don't know any better. Mm. And so my fear is that when it happens, uh, a lot of people are going to be caught off guard. And then they're going to say, how did this happen? This, this, This shouldn't have happened. Of course it should happen. Because they pumped so much money into it, which is why now you see if you're paying attention. And I put this in my note today. I put it in my note a couple of times last week, too, because I'm trying to drive the point home. You know, three months ago, four months ago, Jay Powell came out and assured every single person there was absolutely no conversation happening about taper and interest rates were going to stay at zero until 2024. Suddenly... Two, now that the macro data is changing, right? The data points are getting stronger. Everybody's been talking about it. Now he suddenly comes out. He starts hinting that maybe rates are going to move in mid-2023. Okay, mid-2023 mm. is six months ahead of 2024, which is a big enough change in psychology. Now, there's no guarantee, but it's a change. But the very interesting thing that they did, and this is what people need to understand because they do this all the time. And then after they made the, they got the market comfortable with the mid-2023, maybe, then Jimmy Bullard, St. Louis Fed president, Rafi Bostock, Atlanta's Fed president, both come out and say they support a rate increase by mid-2022. Mm. Okay, that's a big, big difference. Mid-2022 and 2024 are 18 months apart. That's a massive difference. And for anybody who thinks that there's not a method to that to that event, there is. Because what happens is Jay Powell, who's chair of the Fed, he comes out and says mid-2023. But then he sends out the minions, right? The other, the, the, the other St. Louis president, the other Fed presidents, to float the idea in the marketplace that they think they, they played off as they, not the Fed, but they, me, Kenny Polgari, thinks that rates should go up in mid-2022, except I happen to be a regional Fed president. So when I say it, it, it takes on more takes on more meaning, right? Like Jimmy Bullard, when he said it on that Friday on, on CNBC, that in his mind, rates should go up in mid-2022, caught the market by complete surprise. And if you remember, the Dow sold off five or 600 points that day, the market under pressure, because it was a massive change in the conversation. And then right away, uh, Powell comes out and says, no, no, no. So I never said that. Everyone's allowed to make their own opinion. They're all fed. They're all adults. They're all adults. But that is not the Fed, major Fed think policy. So everybody settle back. But here's the point. They've now floated that balloon. It is now out there in the conversation. Whether you want to believe it or not, it is now out there in the conversation. Because if the macro data continues to be strong and inflation readings continue to be strong and they are not as transitory as they think, then guess what? That mid-2022 conversation is going to be an early 2022 conversation. That's the point. 
Yeah, and a lot of these, the market responds more to rumor and talk and perception than it truly does to intrinsic value in a lot of ways, right? So when there's when we're having these conversations and when the Fed is saying something, those words are meant to manipulate the market in a certain way. Am I right in saying that? Well, so here's the deal. And you can thank Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and Stock Twits and Reddit, Wall Street Bets. That's mm. what you could do. And you can thank every algorithm that's out there because there's this other thing that's known that 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 now exists that didn't exist, you know, when I was your age, called smart, uh, smart logic algorithms. Smart mm. logic algorithms do exactly that. They scrape the headlines. So whether it's on Twitter, whether it's really? on Facebook, whether it's on uh, uh, Instagram, or whether it's in the news, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Reuters, uh, the Financial Times, these algorithms go through all these business stories and they and they scan for words. Thanks for listening to part one of this podcast with Kenny Polkari. Subscribe now to automatically download part two of this conversation as Kenny and I go into how these smart logic algorithms create advantages for institutional investors, how politics can affect the stock market, Kenny's predictions surrounding inflation and interest rates, as well as gold, what you need to do to diversify your portfolio, and whether or not you should be investing in Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. In the meantime, check out Kenny's daily market breakdown at KennyPaulCarry.com. That's K-E-N-N-Y-P-O-L-C-A-R-I.com or text INVEST to 21000 to subscribe to Kenny's newsletter and have it sent directly to you. I can't wait to share part two of this conversation with you tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your day. Do something awesome and make every friend.